Love my Boyer's Coffee in the morning. And you know what I love even more about Boyer's Coffee? They're locally owned. They've been locally operated since 1965 when they were founded back in Denver by Bill Boyer. They're a family company. And you know they went through that terrible fire earlier this year in late March, but they rebound because they've always rebounded. And they start my day. And I'm sure they start a lot of your days. You can get Boyer's Coffee uh, at all of your favorite uh, supermarkets around. You can also get them at uh, boyerscoffee.com. And they have so many wonderful flavors. And they have uh, other stuff that you want to check out on the website, boyerscoffee.com. You know what a great job is? Their roasting team. Every batch of coffee that they make to make sure the quality is perfect each and every time, they get to taste it. That's a pretty good gig. Boyer's Coffee. What guy on earth doesn't like his power tools? And I have the best of the best in my garage, Steel Power Tools, S-T-I-H-L. You can find them at steeldealers.com, whether it's chainsaws, whether it's blowers, whether it's trimmers. They have the product for you. It's a company built on real power, tools built for real people, and dealers who deliver real service. And there are more than 9,000 dealers nationwide. I've been involved with them for a number of years. And uh, they're terrific. And they also are heavily involved and have been for a number of years with your Colorado Rockies. SteelDealers.com. S-T-I-H-L. This week on the Drew Goodman Podcast, Nolan Arenado does it again. He wins his eighth consecutive gold glove. And it's part one of Drew's visit with Fox Sports analyst and former CU quarterback, Joel Klatt. And I thought to myself, okay, I can do this. I'm I'm good enough to throw the football here. I know that I can learn the offense. And then from there, it was just a matter of working hard. This is the Drew Goodman Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? Welcome to podcast number 69, the Drew Goodman Podcast. And we are going to tell you off the top, we will have uh, an interview a little bit later on with Joel Klatt a guy that uh, has really done a marvelous job and made it big in broadcasting, the former CU record-setting quarterback. He has an interesting story, and in part one, you'll hear about his uh, evolution to where he is now out on the West Coast working for Fox. It's November, I think football in November, so I think uh, having Joel on is perfect for this uh, time of year. CU is getting going. CSU lost uh, their first game. And as we uh, tape, they're getting ready to take on Wyoming in the border war. But we're going to talk uh, college football each and every week coming up. But we'll also uh, start out with some baseball today. And great news for the Rockies and Nolan Arenado specifically. Here's a big shocker. He wins his eighth consecutive gold glove. This was the proverbial no-brainer. He may have been in a short sample size, and I know it was disappointing from an offensive standpoint, but for the 60 games, or a little bit less than that, that he participated in, he may have been playing at his highest level yet defensively, which really says something, because every year he leaves uh, our mouths agape at some of the plays that he makes, whether it's coming to the baseball, going to his left, going to his right, throwing from the seat of his pants, uh, running over and into a tarp to make a, a catch down the left field line, as he did several years ago in San Francisco. He is the best. It's that simple. And he may go down as the best ever. You may be wondering, where does he rank among third basemen all time in number of gold gloves? Well, he's currently third. I think he's tied with Scott Rowland. 
Mike Schmidt, as in uh, Michael Jack Schmidt, the great slugger who hit over 500 home runs in the Hall of Famer, he had 10 gold gloves in his career. The standard bearer, Brooks Robinson, won 16 consecutive gold gloves. That is the uh, that is the most ever. I will say this, and I did see Brooks Robinson as a as a kid being a Mets fan. I saw the uh, Mets take on the Baltimore Orioles when Brooks and Frank Robinson were leading the Orioles in the late 60s and uh, 70s. The Miracle Mets obviously won that World Series uh, four games to one in 69. I saw Brooks Robinson play. The scrutiny, and he was great, no question, but the, the, the scrutiny and how we critique fielders and the metrics that are utilized today to determine who is a gold glove winner as opposed to many years ago where oftentimes it went to the best hitter at a given position. And it was almost kind of a, a throwaway uh, type of award. Well, now, when you win a gold glove, you have earned it. And Nolan Arenado, and Rockies fans know this, has earned each and every one of his eight consecutive gold gloves. It is going to be a fascinating and interesting and probably frustrating offseason for baseball fans, front offices in Major League Baseball, and ownership groups. How this plays out in terms of free agency, in terms of how teams populate their rosters in preparation for spring training 2021 has been affected and will continue to be affected, as we all have, by COVID-19. Only 60 games last year, as we all know, no fans in the ballpark. So owners and ownership groups lost quite a bit of money. What will their appetite be in the immediate term and even going forward beyond 2021 to spend at the same level that maybe their budget would have allowed had we not gone through and continue to go through this pandemic. And it affects everyone. Yeah, the Dodgers went out and they made the trade for Mookie Betts prior to the pandemic and they signed him uh, to an enormous deal. I understand that. But I think there could potentially be bargains out there and... Some players that thought they were going to get X may get X minus a certain percentage. I still think your big names will get paid. And if you're looking at the top free agents on the market, you're talking about JT Romuto, who's probably number one. And by the way, would that fit a Rockies need? Clearly. I mean, there is very few catchers, really over the last 20 years, where you can say, Tremendous offensive player, tremendous defensive player. And in the case of Ramuto, I'll add a, a, a third element to his game that is not frequently associated with catchers, and that is his base running ability and his speed. He runs pretty well. Great athlete, again, impactful offensive player, tremendous defensive player. His transitions uh, to throwing the baseball and his arm strength are almost without parallel in the game. He's going to get paid. He is beyond the Rockies' reach, one would assume, because the Rockies have paid a large amount of money, naturally, uh, for Nolan. We'll talk about where he ends up, if he stays, and all of that. Uh, 
on ensuing shows. It's been an ongoing topic. But Nolan's a Rocky, and he's handsomely paid as he deserves to be. Trevor Story. The Rockies are going to have to pay Trevor Story. So it's unrealistic to think the Rockies are going to be in the JT Romuto uh, sweepstakes. After that, you have George Springer, tremendous outfielder with Houston. He is going to get paid. You have Trevor Bauer, starting pitcher, maybe the biggest uh, and most impactful starting pitcher on the market. He says he wants to go year to year. He said that in the past. We'll see uh, how wise that is. And let's not forget the former Rocky, DJ LeMahieu. And I know every Rockies fan, me included, would love to see DJ LeMahieu back in the purple again. But I have to believe that ship has sailed. Uh, you know, if you, if you could reverse history, DJ would still be a Rocky. Didn't work out that way. But he's one of the top four or five free agents on the market. The Rockies are not going to be in play in all likelihood for any of those guys. So then you say, okay, well, how can this team help themselves? Where do they need help the most? You watch them. I watched every pitch. They need help offensively, and they need help in the bullpen, most notably. I like the foundation of their starting rotation. I've been saying that uh, for a long time, not just as this season played out, but I said going into this year, I th- thought it could be a strength. Uh, I thought the offense was going to perform at a much higher level than it did. Tremendously disappointing. And now it's two years in a row where that offense is underachieved. So how do you get better, in addition to some of these young players coming along, which has to be part of the equation, um, and it has to be for every team, whether you're loaded financially like the Dodgers or the Yankees or the Red Sox, you have to be a draft and develop, sign free agents, do a good job in Latin America, and develop your young players. And that doesn't change. And and so the Hilliards and the Hampsons and have to continue to grow. Tapia had good growth this summer. That is part of what ultimately, hopefully, is the winning equation. But you have to enhance what you already have. So let's take a look at a couple of free agents. And we'll do this exercise uh, more as we continue into the soft season. But there's a couple that, that come to mind that are, I believe, affordable. Um, again, it's not my money, but but you know they're not in the JT Ramuto, George Springer class of being compensated financially. And even DJ LeMayhew, he's gonna he's gonna make considerable uh, a considerable amount of money. One would figure this off season. I'll begin with a guy I have always admired and hope that the Rockies would have kicked the tires on, and I'm sure they did. I'm not privy to every conversation they have about uh, all the players out there. But this guy, when he was a free agent a couple of years ago, went from Cleveland to Houston. And I'm talking about one of the most professional hitters in the sport, Michael Brantley. Brantley is a free agent, left-handed bat, outfielder, great teammate, as solid an offensive player as you see. This guy is a tough, tough out. Real simple approach from the left side. He's the son of Mickey Brantley. I got some numbers for you since we'll play that game. Do you know his career high in strikeouts is? And this is something that hurt the Rockies and has hurt the Rockies the last couple of years. Too many empty at-bats, right? Too many left turns. His high watermark for strikeouts in a season is 67. I had to look twice when I saw that. 
He puts the ball in play. He slashed last year in the abbreviated season 300, 364, 479, and he had an OPS of 840. For the uninitiated, that slash line, a 300 batting average, a 364 on base percentage, and a slugging percentage of 479. Again, the 840 OPS is very, very good. He has had four straight years, in fact, of being above 800 in OPS. Michael Brantley is a guy that he's not going to sign a five-year deal. He's 33. Is it, is it three years? Um, and the other thing to remember is we're not talking about pitchers here. We know pitchers, you have to overpay to get them to, to come and, and play at altitude. Hitters should salivate at the opportunity to play at Coors Field. So that's a name to keep in mind. And uh, we'll see if, if the Rockies get involved with Michael Brantley. He may stay in Houston. Who knows? The other guy, which fills a couple of needs, the Rockies, again, need to be better offensively. And, and one of the areas they have to improve is behind the plate. I've always been a big Tony Walters fan. Uh, I think he receives the baseball really well. I think he blocks the baseball really well. But Tony is short offensively, and I don't think that is um, a revelation uh, to anybody. Uh, the Rockies played really three different catchers this year, the veteran Drew Butera and Elias Diaz. And Diaz showed a little bit of pop, the former Pirate. But there's a guy out on the market who is intriguing. And I think he's really got his best offensive years in front of him. And that's James McCann. He's 30 years old. Last year, he slashed 289, 360, and 536 in his most impactful offensive season. He had an OPS of, of almost 900. But his last couple of years, two years ago in a more full uh, season, he had 18 home runs. He's a guy that would help them offensively um, and, again, not break the bank from a compensation standpoint. So a couple of names to uh, to keep in mind as the hot stove league eventually gets going. It may not be as hot as years past, certainly because of everything that has transpired, the uncertainty going forward, how many fans will be allowed in the ballparks initially in 2021. Huge factor for ownership. And, and also on the horizon, you have the CBA that will expire at the end of 2021, and you hope to God that uh, you have two sides that can finally work together and realize that they're in it together and uh, not have it played out in public and uh, get that thing done so baseball fans will have baseball for years to come and not have to worry about uh, what's going on in the boardroom. Before we get to my man Joel Klatt, I want to talk a little bit about that Bronco win against the Chargers. That was something else. Down three touchdowns, you come uh, all the way back and win. Uh, Drew Locke, you know I'm a Drew Locke fan because he has moxie, he has character, he's not afraid, he's got some gunslinger in him. It's going to frustrate you sometimes, but it also may provide uh, the opportunity to be a part of a great comeback as he was in the second half after a very uh, miserable first half offensively for the Broncos. One of the things that I came out of that ball game thinking about was... Philip Lindsay and specifically the running back room and how the Broncos spent their money a little bit last offseason. Philip Lindsay got him going with that 55-yard touchdown burst. Um, he has had another 
impactful year. I know he had the concussion. The Broncos went out and signed in the offseason, and I didn't understand it at that time. Uh, Melvin Gordon to a two-year $16 million deal. This has nothing to do with Melvin Gordon's talents. He's he's a guy that you know has always been a physical runner. He can catch the ball out of the backfield. We've seen that on display at times so far this year with the Broncos. But the importance of the running back has been diminished considerably over the last number of years. There are some first-round picks that have made their mark. Derrick Henry is a load. He, he is, you know, a, a terrific player. Christian McCaffrey is going to come back this week. Terrific player. But there's also a great number of backs taken further down in the draft or even our free agents, see Philip Lindsay, that are very, very fine players and help teams win in the NFL. I looked at the yards per carry uh, after that uh, Bronco win against the Chargers in the league. And check this out. First in the NFL among running backs in yards per carry is undrafted Philip Lindsay at 6.7 yards uh, per carry. Third on that list is Raheem Mostert, the uh, running back for San Francisco, undrafted. Eighth on the list, a Coloradan from Eaton, Austin Eckler. Undrafted. I know Eckler's dealt with some injuries this year. So you don't have to draft a guy high to get productivity out of that position. That's why when you already had Philip Lindsay, not my money, clearly, but why spend additional large amounts of money on Melvin Gordon when perhaps you can find someone to assist or back up Philip Lindsay that doesn't come with the same price tag. I was baffled at the time that the uh, Broncos chose to spend their money in that regard, and I think it was further illustrated by the impact that uh, Philip Lindsay had not only last week, but again, all week. And, and you just added fuel to his fire and the, and the Broncos benefit because uh, he's now doing it for a third consecutive year. So good for Philip Lindsay, good for the Broncos uh, for that uh, Come from behind victory. Well, it's time to uh, sit down with a guy that I uh, hadn't had a chance to talk to really in a, in, a, in a few years, and I used to work with him. So it uh, is good to catch up with Joel Clapp from Fox. Well, it's always good to catch up with an old friend, and Joel Clapp joins us. And I, I got to tell you something funny, my man, because I obviously I know you and and I and I know your history and we worked together for a period of time and I, and I watch you regularly um, and, and I know in a strange way it sounds funny to say this but I'm I'm really proud of you and I hope that doesn't sound weird but um, two things one I'm proud of you and two I googled you to see okay is there anything else going on that uh, I should know about before uh, we sit down and do this for the podcast and the first thing that pops up Joel is Joel Klatt shirtless. And I almost called and canceled. I didn't realize that. I mean, I haven't Googled myself and shoot, I don't even know how long. Wait, does it really? It, it, well, there was some, I didn't click on it, but there was something that popped up and said Joel Klatt, and then right under it, it says Joel Klatt shirtless. And usually it's like Joel Klatt family, Joel Klatt, you know, it'll have somebody's wife or, you know, Joel Klatt college football, Joel Klatt NFL, 
Joel Klatt shirtless, I was less interested in. That, that's, that's news to me. I'm going to have to, uh, I'll see what I can do, <laughs> I can do about that. Uh, but yeah. hey, man, it's, it's, it's good to be with you. I can tell you that. And, um, shoot, I, I, you know, here's the deal. I fell in love with, with broadcasting college football in large part due to the fact that we had such a great time, you and I. It was one of the first games I ever did in college. I had done high school football, but, you and I did a Nebraska Kansas State pay per view game when Indominus Sue was playing, and and um, you know Josh Freeman for K State, and I don't know if you remember that for Mark Halsey at FSN Midwest, and I, I fell in love with it that day, man. I, I got to tell you, and I was like, I want to do this forever. So you know, that's that's kind of what started the wheels turning. Yeah, I do. You know what, Joel? I do remember that. I remember when Josh Freeman was a really hot prospect, and. Uh, you know, heck, and Dominican Sue's still going pretty strong, uh, in the NFL. Uh, I may have remarked to you at, at some point in time, I certainly have to other partners through the years that, uh, you know, it's a, it's an unbelievable way not only to stay in the game, uh, to be able to talk about the game, but from your perspective, it hurts a whole lot less when you get up Sunday morning, doesn't it? Oh my gosh. I mean, exponentially less. Uh, and, and you're right. You know, I've, there were times during the course of the last five, ten years um, that I've had opportunities to maybe get into coaching ranks, and and I just, you know, I've never done that because um, I, one, I love spending time with my family, and two, you know, this allows me to to scratch that itch and be involved with, stay around the game, talk about the game, and and yet kind of have some semblance of of a family life. So uh, it certainly worked out, man, and I, I consider myself very fortunate. Yeah, you're, you're doing great. And one of the things that you do, and Tony Romo has gotten a lot of credit um, recently, and, and I know you get credit for this. Uh, I enjoy listening to you, Joel, because you, you obviously were a former quarterback, but you you have to know where the other 10 guys are going. You understand concepts of not just route concepts, but play concepts, and you're able to articulate that in in short windows is you know that's what you have between plays when Gus hands it off to you and and you learn something and it's hard to learn new stuff when you when we've all seen so many football games through the years but I think you're doing a great job of that I appreciate that that's that's kind of the art of broadcasting you know at, at least in in my seat the analyst seat I would say the same in in baseball and and other sports as well but you know how do you communicate something that can be complicated and, and make it simple in a, in a short window. I think that's the challenge, and I think that's one of the things that I'm constantly looking at. And, and you know, I, I jot ways to, to talk about certain things in football down and, like, how can I remove a technical term and put something in there that everyone will realize, and yet someone that played for 15 years would be like, yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I think that's the challenge and the beauty of it. You know what's neat for me? I was watching last night uh, as we taped this. It's a it's a Tuesday morning. Uh, I've I've been a lifelong. I think you remember a lifelong Giant fan being from New York, and and it's yep. they're they've been hard to watch. They play hard, but Daniel Jones he, he's more emblematic of the kind of quarterback, and even like Lamar Jackson and 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 Russell Wilson, and we we see all these guys now at the position that you played so well at Colorado that. Yeah, Brady, you can still find in the pocket, but you have to be an athlete back there. And the NFL is finally embracing the athletic quarterback and the college concepts that were always verboten in the NFL. Oh no, you, you can only win if you if you if you have the quarterback in the middle of the pocket. 
Well, you know, a couple of things. One, I think, is is that you you have to adjust to what you're supplied with, you know, and there just are not enough pocket passers. And I'm not saying that that's what, you know, the NFL would want. I think that they would take guys that are traditional pocket passers, but we just don't see those developed in college football anymore, you know, in large part because – the athletic quarterback is such an inherent value in, in the college game and, and gaining the advantage in particular in the run game. When you're not as concerned with the longevity of your player at that position and you've just got tight windows, you know, two, three, maximum four, you know, seasons with one quarterback, you're not as concerned about um, giving him up to hits or exposing him to hits. So what do you do? You run your quarterback because it's, it's an incredible advantage in the numbers of, of football and in the run game. So, you know, Drew, that's what the, the college game has gone towards because that's what the high school game went towards. And now that's what the NFL is supplied with. So I think in, in some respect they've been forced um, to wrap their arms around this style of play and that style of quarterback. But it, it, it certainly has taken hold. And, and the other thing that I would say, and this is just from a stylistic standpoint, even the guys that are, are, are pocket passers, I've always believed that playing the position, whether it was inside the pocket or outside the pocket, was a lot more like playing shortstop than it was like being a pitcher on top of the bump. You know, you are just not given the opportunity to repeat your delivery. A pitcher is constantly, all he's trying to do is repeat his delivery, repeat it, and we talk about mechanics with the pitcher in, in the sport of baseball. And that's not offered you, afforded you at quarterback. You know, you're constantly going to be off platform like a, like a shortstop or a third baseman. Like if I'm looking at the Colorado Rockies, you know, the best quarterback would be Nolan Arenado. Cause, cause he can throw from any angle. He's athletic. He can do all the, whether it's in the pocket or outside the pocket. And I think that's just the nature of, of the position that maybe has gotten lost on people, um, throughout the years. Yeah. Interesting. So you, you mentioned baseball and I want to take you way back. So you, you start for your, for your dad at Pomona High School, and you were a three-sport star in high school, you get drafted because you had a, a, a ton of pop as a 17, 18-year-old. You get drafted, uh, I think, in the 11th round by the Padres. Is that what it was, Joel? That's right. That's right. I, I think I was taking, like, one pick ahead of Garrett Atkins, if you remember that. Yeah, that, but he went. To, he, he ended up going to UCLA, correct? I believe so. That's right. Yeah. So you you try your hand at, at minor league baseball. Did you have did you have football offers at that point in time, or was it hey I'm a baseball guy? Well, as is the case, you know, I, I guess it's more rare now with guys specializing. But there was some question with recruiters of of both sports about which sport I would play, um, and and I was I was a much better baseball player than I was football player. Um, and, and I had some football offers, but they were all in the division two ranks. So I took offer, um, an offer from South Dakota state, North Dakota state and Northern Colorado. And at the time, Northern Colorado was a, a pretty good program and they were, um, offered a bunch of us from the Jefferson County league. And, and I actually committed and signed with them to play football, but I gotta be honest, like I, it didn't sound that attractive to go play division two college football when there was going to be, you know, bigger things afforded in the baseball ranks um so you know after once i got into the spring of my senior year i I was pretty committed to to playing baseball after high school do you think you gave it uh you know two or three years 
And, and then I, I think you've told me this story. You said, "Hey, I, I want to. If I'm not in high A, I'm gonna I'm gonna shut it down and try to do something else." Is that is that basically was your mindset? Was, was there? I, I guess there can't be any regrets because you had a great career at Colorado, and we'll get to that in a moment. But you know, when you look back, do you go, "Did I give baseball, which is you, you know, you have to grind in baseball. It takes a long yeah, time. Yeah. Uh, do you do you regret it all?" No, I like. I, I always say it was the best bad decision, you know, worst decision I ever made. <laughs> it was kind of both because if you were just looking at it from a baseball perspective, I wasn't ready playing high school baseball in the state of Colorado. So I think it was an 18-game spring schedule. You know what I mean? Uh, Drew, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You see these guys from around the country. They're just more prepared in that sport to go and have success in, in the minor league. So I wasn't prepared to – to succeed in minor league baseball, but that was the path that was intended for me to ultimately kind of, um, you know, turn out the way that it did. Um, I, I, I think that the only regret is, is that I wasn't mature enough to take advantage of what was an incredible opportunity at that age. I just didn't get it. And in and, and large part, when I left baseball, Drew, uh, there, there was, yes, the, I wasn't succeeding. I wasn't seeing the, the movement in the organization and all, and also just my, my life. You know, I wasn't making great decisions in my life. I was like, what am I doing? I'm 21. I need a degree. I need to clean up my life. And so I was like, the best thing for me is to leave baseball. And once I decided to leave baseball, it was never really a baseball football decision as, in, as much as it was a life decision. Like I need to go get a degree. And I chose Colorado and then decided to walk on the football program because I had eligibility left. So that, to me, that's fascinating because you, I think all people who are successful are not afraid to bet on themselves. So again, three years earlier, you're, you're assessed, if you will, and that doesn't mean it's the right assessment, but you're a D2 caliber college quarterback if they don't move you i mean you were athletic enough that maybe they would have moved you who the hell knows right so you walk on at colorado and, and i want to take you back because you have told me this story before you even though you had belief in yourself as an athlete you weren't sure what you were getting into because this is now major college football at a program that historically at least over the the previous decade plus had been a top 25 caliber program well not only that but the 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 season before I, I walked on, Colorado finished in the in the top ten and had won the Big Twelve, you know. And so, it it was a jump. And and here's where it came down to: I I decided that I wanted a college experience, I wanted a, a quality degree, and I was going to make the most of whatever opportunity I could in football. And that was a clear third position for me. And so that's why I ended up at Colorado. I could have gone other places if it was just about playing or, you know, uh, just about the sport. I could have gone to, to Boise or walked on at any place, you know, and thought to myself, well, I can succeed on the field here. But for me, it, it really wasn't about succeeding on the field. But here's, I think, the, the biggest uh, point was, as soon as I got into the program, I realized that those three years of professional baseball had steeled me, readied me to be a self-motivated professional. Like I was looking around, I was like, oh my gosh, 
I get it, and they don't. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I understand how to work hard without being asked to work hard. I understand all this. I've failed. These kids haven't failed yet. That was an incredible realization for me. And then, you know, very quickly after I got there, I, I it kind of came to me, and, and I thought to myself, okay, I can do this. I'm I'm good enough to throw the football here. I know that I can learn the offense. And then from there, it was just a matter of working hard. But I, I, I do think the preparation of failing and learning how to be a pro, you know, readied me for that experience. And, and nothing readies you as an athlete more than – baseball failure which is ubiquitous right <laughs> it's constant man it is it is constant and uh unrelenting and and i didn't know how to handle that so when i got back to to you know to playing football and i'm completing 60 65 of my passes it felt like i was like man this is the greatest thing of all time we'll continue our conversation with joel clatt in a moment but first this for ideal home loans they've been in business since 2001 brent ivinson started the company and they do a marvelous job of taking care of everyone i've used them a number of occasions and they are simply superb. They make it easy. They make it convenient for you. In fact, I just sent a friend and they were telling me they had talked to somebody else and to get an appraisal on a property they were buying up in the mountains, it was going to take them two, three, four months to actually get that appraisal done. It pushed them way back at Ideal Home Loans. They were able to get the appraisal done almost immediately, which saved them time and eventually saved them money as well. Give them a call, 303-867-7000, Ideal Home Loans, 303-867-7000. And now more with my old friend, Joel Klatt. When did you first catch Gary Barnett's eye uh, on the field? Because I think your your freshman year, your quote-unquote, you know, your, your first year at CU, they had you like, uh, you know, as a, as a were you a gunner on, on punt team or something? I mean, what were you doing? On yeah. Well, I think that um, it wasn't that I caught, and this is where I think uh, what I had learned, um, Drew, and I learned that more so than than trying to please coaches, you have to prove it to your teammates, and that's what I learned in in baseball. You know, and that that you can't hide, right? Like in, in baseball, you can't hide. Uh, the pitchers know if you can field or not. Uh, the, everyone knows, you know, the, the the if you're up to bat and you've got no discipline, you're going to be exposed, right? Like everything's exposed in baseball. And it's exposed for your peers, and your peers know it before anybody else knows it. And so when I first got to Colorado, it was the off season, and we were just throwing, you know, in the summer and seven on seven. And it wasn't that I caught Gary's eye as much as it, it was some of the older players that were on the team actually, unbeknownst to me, went to the coaching staff and said, hey, who's the new quarterback? And they were like, oh, which one? And they were like the walk-on kid. And so that that's kind of how it started. Um and I and and you know, I'll always be thankful for those guys. Guys like Derek McCoy, you know, an older wide receiver at the time and, and some of the defensive backs that were back there, like Phil Jackson and uh Donald Strickland and, and those guys. They're the ones that kind of first mentioned to the coaching staff that, hey, you guys have a player here that's gonna be pretty decent. Well, you were more than pretty decent. You set nineteen school records as a as a three year starter. Did that even exceed whatever expectations you had for what could occur? <laughs> yes. 
Uh, I will tell you, and uh, to go along with a, a couple answers previously, you know, football was third position for me in making this decision to go back. And so, so Drew, for me, anything on top of, of running out behind Ralphie was going to be icing on the cake. I, I never, I never really thought like, Hey, you know, you're going to be able to start or, or this or that. I was going to go have fun, compete my butt off and, and do whatever I could to enjoy my experience and be a good teammate. And, and so the fact that I can remember the first time I ever traveled with the traveling squad and I was like, this is amazing. This is amazing. I can't, I can't believe I'm getting to do this. The first time I ever stepped field on a game, while it wasn't that successful, I was a true freshman. They put me out there against Baylor in a, in a lopsided game. That, I, I remember, you know, like crying with my dad afterward. Cause it's like we sat in those stands our whole lives watching the Colorado Buffalo. These were like just dream come true type moments. He told me that the next year, when we ran out of the tunnel and I jogged onto the field as the starter in my second season, that he cried in the stands. You know, so I, I just like, I know some people will roll their eyes, but I, I am not joking when I tell you that anything on top of getting to run out behind Ralphie for me was gravy, man. It was, uh, and, and that's why I enjoyed my experience so much. That is, um, it's tremendous to hear. And, and I, and I'm looking at it from two perspectives one you know how you articulated that because uh, you know especially growing up here and and being the son of a coach and all that but having watched games at Folsom Field and all of a sudden now you're out there and it's like okay I got a uniform on and a helmet and and I'm part of the squad in this great next thing you know you're out there as the starter and at the most important position in football and then as a dad I have three boys you know I'm a little further down the path than you are you have three boys and to see and whether they were boys or girls is irrelevant but to see your kids doing what we love uh, and you obviously were able to do it at a much higher level than I was. Um, but to to be able to watch your kids compete and to see their joy and their success, there, there, there's nothing better. And you'll enjoy that down the road with, with your children. There's nothing better. Well, I think that as, as a parent, um, I have learned that my happiest moments are when I'm delighting in my, my son's delight you know when when they find things that light them up and it can be the things that i love or not you know that you know it clearly does something to my heart and my dad knew what a struggle it was for me to fail in baseball and and the process of those four years were really tough you know from 18 to 22 years old they were tough on me and 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 growing up maturing and then to kind of come out the other side and find success more so maybe even find yourself. I think that's what, what he was so emotional about. And, um, you know, it was, it was, it was a fun time, man. I gotta, I gotta tell you, I'll, I'll always remember, this is just one of those, I'll always remember jogging out against Colorado State. I'm a sophomore. We're unranked. They're ranked. They're favored. Bradley Van Pelt is their quarterback. You know, they were supposed to beat us in 2003. And there was 78,000, 77,000 at Mile High. I mean, it was packed. It's still to this day the record for a college football attendance uh, in the state of Colorado. And we just played amazing. And, like, I, I will always remember that. That was athletically the highlight, certainly, of, of my career. Yeah, I, I remember 
that game. I remember those games, and and I hope, and it's probably a nice place to segue. I hope we can get back to we're both programs. I mean, you're Colorado at heart, man. We're both programs are doing well. But but some of those games, you had great personalities. I mean, Ben, I, I don't know if you ever saw Bradley Van Pelt down the road after that. You know, he's the sur- he, you live in Newport Beach now, man. He may be on a surfboard, uh, yeah. you know, out, outside your house right now for all we know. But that exactly. that kid was a great athlete and a great character, but it but it was part of what was happening in college football in the state then where where both programs were good. Yeah. And, and, you know, hopefully we can get back to that. And, and I will tell you that, you know, from my standpoint, I was always a Colorado State fan and I would have done anything to go there and to get recruited by them. And when I was in high school, Drew, you'll love this. There was a kid one year younger than me, um, Justin Holland, who they liked more than me. You know, so they said, no, we're not going to, you know, recruit you or, or try to bring you in because we want Justin Holland. And so, you know, it, once that happened, man, like when I got to play against them, I, I wanted to beat them so bad. And then if you remember, Van Pelt ran his mouth about the year before. Like I, it was great. Everything about it, the drama of that game was great. And, and like you said, part of it was the personalities, but also part of it was the quality of the programs. And uh, hopefully they can get back to that. And, you know, I'm, I'm hoping Carl Durrell is, is the right guy for Colorado, and, and we'll see about uh, Coach Adazio. But uh, I think it's, to be honest with you, it's depressing and a shame to see what has happened to those programs of the last decade. It was cool to hear Joel reminisce about his first start against Colorado State and 76-plus thousand people at, uh, at Mile High Stadium. And I remember those games, and I remember, you know, CSU was still really good at that time. CU was very good under Gary Barnett. That was tremendous theater, great stuff. And as a college football fan, I long for that. I want to see Colorado great. I want to see Colorado State terrific. I love seeing Air Force do well. I, I, I love when Wyoming is playing good football, and they have the last several years. But that CU-CSU rivalry is unique to our state. It is special, and I would love to see those teams return to not just regional prominence, but but national prominence. A little more difficult path for a group of five school like Colorado State, and we can get into them more in ensuing weeks. But when Joel mentioned that, it did make me reminisce fondly about some of those matchups and some of those characters, like Bradley Van Pelt. Man, he was uh, he was a great player, but uh, I know he got under the skin of the black and gold. Also, we're gonna have more with Joel Clatt. I mean, we we. Could talk for a long, long time. Fill up a couple afternoons worth of tape. So uh, next week, uh, you'll hear part two of my conversation with Joel Clapp. Before we get on out of here on uh, the Drew Goodman podcast number 69, I had to tell you something that's bugging me. And I do this every year. And I'll probably do it again this year. Will referees in the NFL, back judges, side judges, stop throwing flags for pass interference unless it is egregious, unless you absolutely, without question, can tell that 
the defensive back, who is already at a significant disadvantage because all the rules favor the offense and favor wide receivers, unless you can tell that he impeded or grabbed an arm or that sort of thing, keep the flag in your pocket. It is an enormous foul when it's called. If it's 35 yards down the field, it becomes a 35-yard penalty. If it's in the end zone, it's first and goal at the one-yard line. If it's P.I., fine, throw the flag. But if it ain't, or if it's marginal, let them play. Driving me nuts. It will not be the last time I get on that soapbox. Hope you enjoyed it. Again, part two with Joel Cloud will come next week. And uh, everybody stay safe out there. Enjoy. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. You can go to the website at the Drew Goodman Podcast.com as well. Take care, everybody. Talk to you soon.